These are very strange times we live in. Strange and scary. Maybe by the time you listen to this podcast, we'll be back to normal again. The new normal. Probably not, though. That may be a ways down the road. This coronavirus is messing up the lives of everyone. Two days ago, I was in the gym for my early morning workout. Probably my favorite time of the day. Dawn and I work out regularly, almost religiously, with some people who are just as dedicated. We've been going to the same gym for nine years. It's not much of a gym. Not too clean. The equipment is old. The owner doesn't even know who we are. On the plus side, we go anytime we want. We have an area where we set up New people learn not to get in our way, and we play our own music as loud as we want. Well, my music. For the last year or so, there are three Marines who join us for parts of our sessions, frequently the last half or two-thirds of it. They are the key Marine Corps recruiters for Western North Carolina. Intense, extremely fit, and always up for a challenge. They're a very serious and extremely nice group of guys. One problem, they're a lot younger than Dawn and I. A lot. So I'm going through my news a month ago, and I see an article by a guy who challenged himself to 100 burpees a day for a month. Uh, I thought, this dude's crazy. He said it improved his posture, his endurance, his strength. He said, after a while, it kind of became a meditation. I must tell you, I don't like burpees. They're an excellent full body exercise, but they're not fun and they never get easier for me. And this guy, a kid really, compared to me, did 3,000 of them in a month. He said, it's just like falling down and getting up again. Now, that is a novel way of looking at this exercise. So, one morning after our workout, I think the dopamine had kicked in. I turned to the leader of those Marines, a master sergeant. I said, Justin, I have an idea for a different workout. What if I challenge you to do 100 burpees a day for a month? What do you think? Uh, he didn't uh-uh. pause a second. Uh, that's, sure, you know, enough great. of that. The other two Marines I recorded that piece day. three weeks ago oh, when this whole COVID-19 disaster was just starting to hit us hard. Who wants to hear about some guy doing burpees? Not now. This is Ernie Johnson, founder of Anashira. I have goats, I milk them, and I make very special soap using that milk. That's about enough about that for now. It's been too long since I've made a podcast. A number of you have told me so. Ah, yeah, ah, yeah, you're right. I've been stressed. But I'm back. When I left you last time, I had just returned from Spain to Berlin with my friends. So let's go back to West Berlin in this episode of Stories from Anashira. back from our 
trip to Spain, and I had a few more months in Berlin before I had to come back to the States. I went back to my classes at Die Freie Universität, what we called the FU. I continued studying with Dr. Leventhal. Funny, I hated political science. But this man was so smart in his way of speaking. It was like he was just telling us stories. He'd been there. It was just fascinating. I was thinking, I haven't talked a lot about my girlfriend at the time, Maria. She later became my wife. You may remember my stories of getting to Colombia with my three pals for the wedding. She has been my ex-wife now for about 25 years. We haven't had anything to do with each other for a long time. Partly because of that, she doesn't play a big role in these podcasts. But I need to give her some credit. I got to Berlin as poor as a church mouse. I had some money from a small scholarship and some income from my jobs cleaning rugs and moving furniture. And my meals were paid for. Now, Maria's family was pretty well off, and her father was very generous with her. So when we went out to dinner, Maria invited to more than her share. She threw a helping hand to me on our trip to Spain. I was kind of worried that her family would show up out of the blue and want to see where she lived, but they didn't. We'd been back to Berlin a few weeks. It had been especially cold and snowy for April. We were all sick of the weather. One Saturday was predicted to be nicer. A bunch of us decided we'd go to a park at the Wannsee, a large lake in southwest Berlin. We took the S-Bahn to the Wannsee station, got out, and made our way down to the beach. It was warmer than it had been, but not what any sane person would call warm. There was still snow on the ground and a wind blowing in from the east. We all had coats on, most with caps and mufflers. Oh, the Wannsee, or Lake Van, has quite a history. There was a famous German writer, a playwright. I'd read quite a bit of him, Heinrich von Kleist. He shot himself there in 1811. His lover, Henrietta Vogel, had asked him to kill her first. So he did, of course. And the head of Nazi Germany's Kriminalpolizei, the criminal police, was a man named Arthur Neba. He was also instrumental in the planning and perpetration of the Holocaust. In 1941, he volunteered to command Einsatzgruppe B, the killing unit deployed in Russia, in modern-day Belarus. It had 41,000 victims by the time Neba returned to Berlin in November of 1941, less than a year later. So this evil Nazi became involved in the November 20 plot in 1944, to kill Adolf Hitler. After the attempt failed, he fled and went into hiding on an island in the Wannsee. Yes, our Wannsee. Several months later, he was betrayed by a mistress, and he was tried and sentenced to death by the People's Court on March 2, 1945. You may remember me telling you in a past episode of Plitzen's A Prison. Well, he was executed there 19 days after his trial. He was hanged by piano wire from a meat hook. 
Hitler ordered that the bomb plotters were to be hanged like cattle. So why did this Nazi mass murderer decide to join an assassination attempt on Hitler? No one knows. Probably never know. And 40 days after that, Hitler himself was dead. Okay, don't get worried. Our experience at the lake was not nearly as bloody. Well, we had a few beers there. Someone had brought a bottle of tequila, supposedly to celebrate spring. Well, after a few shots of that, someone started to dare the rest of us. I bet no one will jump into the lake for a swim, he said. Was he crazy? There were still chunks of ice on the lake. Then the trash talk started, and it wasn't long before a German guy and I took the dare. We stripped down to our skivvies and took a running leap into that icy water. I thought my heart had stopped. I know my brain did. We swam out maybe 10 yards, turned around, hollering, and hightailed it back to the beach. I didn't stop shivering until I got back to Sigmundshof and into a hot shower. What did we win? Nothing. Bragging rights. How do I remember this? Well, someone took a photo of us standing there afterwards. Skin all blue. Funny, I don't know where that photo is. I was just thinking about the photo. It was not long after that, on the first weekend in May, when my neighbor Fritz Vesolo invited Maria and me to dinner the following Monday at his good friend's house. We'll go there Monday evening. He wants to make his specialty, forelle blau. Blue trout? I asked Fritz what it was. I'd never heard of such a dish. Well, you'll see when we get there, he said. So we left that Monday after classes. Fritz drove us over there in his Mercedes-Benz sedan, one of those old 190 models. We get to his friend's house, Hans Peter, gave us a glass of wine, and later we sat down to dinner. He served us a bowl of potatoes, put out a platter with four large trout on it, and a bowl of salad. The trout are blue, whole fish with the heads on, skin is blue. It smells great, and it tasted great. It's one of my favorite meals, said Fritz. The skin peeled easily off, and the meat fell right off the bones. I could taste wine, herbs, mm, a hint of juniper berries. I ate my trout, as many of the potatoes as I could, without looking like a glutton. How do you make this? I asked him. Ganz einfach, said Hans Peter. Simple. You boil some water and a good white wine in it. Add some soup greens, which for the Germans are carrots, leek, parsley, celeriac. Uh, they call them soup greens. Some sliced onion, garlic, uh, white wine vinegar, and juniper berries, a clove, some bay leaf. You boil it, throw the trout in, cleaned and very fresh they must be. Drop the heat and let the fish steep for about 10 minutes. Das ist alles. There's no more. Das war ausgezeichnet. Outstanding, I said. What about those potatoes? <laughs> Ganz einfach. Simple. Salzkartoffeln, salted potatoes. You boil the potatoes, you drain them. You put them back on the 
heat to steam a little. I add more salt and a chunk of butter. That's the trick. Turn them in the butter. Oh my God, were those things good? I actually make Salzkartoffel quite frequently here. You know, we grow these potatoes in our garden. Keep them for months afterwards in the root cellar. We'll be getting dinner and Don will say, do you want some uh, mashed potatoes? I say, no, I want Salzkartoffel. We had just cleaned off the table and we're sitting drinking a cup of strong black coffee. And the phone rings. Hans Peter gets up, answers it. Was gone maybe a minute. He comes back and he, he looks shocked. He said, we're supposed to turn on the radio. Check the news right now. That was odd. Germans never had the radio on or the television during a visit. Not that I had ever seen. He switched it on, found the BBC news channel. It was the middle of a news report from the U.S. A demonstration against the bombing in Cambodia turned deadly this afternoon at Kent State University in Ohio, the announcer said. A number of Ohio National Guardsmen fired live ammunition at a group of unarmed student protesters. At least four are dead. A number of others are wounded. One student said, when he was interviewed of the soldiers, suddenly they turned around, got down on their knees, as they were ordered to. They did it all together. They aimed. I was standing there saying, they're not going to shoot. They can't do that. A second student said, the shots were definitely coming my way because when a bullet passes your head, it makes a crack. I hit the ground. Looking over, I saw a student hit. He stumbled and fell. Another student tried to pull him behind a car. Bullets were coming through the windows of the car. And as this student fell behind the car, I saw another student down on the far side of the automobile. The four of us sat speechless at the table. The news report continued. Another witness said, By the time I made my way where I could see them, it was still unclear what was going on. The guardsmen themselves looked stunned. We looked at them. They looked at us. They were just kids, 19 years old, like us, but in uniform, like our boys in Vietnam. Hans Peter shut off the radio. We just sat there. No one spoke. Fritz finally looked at me. So, it's come this far. Your soldiers are not only killing the Vietnamese, they're shooting American students, their own brothers. This moment marked a watershed in my life. I was actually afraid to go home to the States. If they're shooting kids at Kent State today for protesting, what will they do tomorrow or next month? I asked myself. It turned out that all of the kids who were shot were students in good standing. Nixon called anti-war protesters on college campuses bums. Any of us who thought that American feelings about the war in Vietnam would now swing against it were wrong. A Gallup poll taken the day after the shootings showed that 58% of respondents blamed the students and only 11% the National Guard. I went back to classes the next day, still numb. Uh, we need to get on a more positive note. I loved music. 
all kinds. But in those days, it was especially rock and roll, especially live concerts. Now, the West Berlin authorities had a bad relationship with rock and roll concerts and young people. This went back a few years, especially to a concert by the Rolling Stones held at Berlin's Waldbühne. The translation would be forest stage or stage in the forest. This is a venue built next to the Olympic Park, built for the 1936 Olympics by the Nazis. It was constructed in a natural ravine and it was modeled on the ancient Greek amphitheater. Seated 20,000 people and was used for some events at the games, including the boxing. The Stones concert was organized in opposition to alarmist reports about their bad reputation and violence linked to several of their concerts abroad. At several recent venues in England, Ireland, and Sweden, violence had led to responses of police dogs and water cannons. So concert preparations included a huge police operation. The band's whereabouts was kept secret. The Waldbühne was entirely sold out. 21,000 people crowded inside. Several thousand without tickets pressed up against the entrance and the fences. At 8 p.m. sharp, a couple of local groups opened the evening. Team Beats Berlin was one band, and Dee Dee and his ABC boys was another. The Stones were due to appear at 9.30. Berlin police had 357 officers, 12 mounted officers, 30 dogs and their handlers. Substantial reinforcements were on standby next to the stage. A space was ready to hold any prisoners. People outside the venue without tickets started pressing against a fence and police began beating these ticketless fans with batons. Groups were dispersed with fire hoses, lots of screaming, yelling. Inside, the atmosphere became heated. Firecrackers were thrown, as well as shoes and other items, lots of underwear. There was a surge of tension just before the Rolling Stones began playing. Ten minutes into the concert, several dozen fans climbed onto the stage to join the musicians. Police used batons to clear the stage raising the tension even higher. The Stones played on. Maybe 10 minutes later, the concert was called off. This was followed by acts of violence and destruction, deliberate destruction of equipment, wooden benches, barriers, lighting systems. Every bench was destroyed. The Waldbühne was not the only thing in tatters. So was a reputation of beat music, the image of Anglo-American rock, of young people in general, and the police didn't come out looking too good either. The causes of this violence and destruction have been written about and studied for years with all German seriousness. It was even debated in German parliament. None of my friends had attended that concert, but it was stuff of urban legend and it was front and center in the minds of West Berlin officials and police. They were not going to let that happen again. It was early July, about a week before the scheduled concert of the Led Zeppelin, and we talked about it. 
Look, said Rudy, we don't know if we'll ever get to see them again. Look at all the artists who've died in the last few years. Yes, said Jose, not King Cole, Bobby Fuller, Woody Guthrie, Otis Redding. Everyone threw in names. Yeah, even Brian Jones died last year. Little did we know, but that was nothing. Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin would be dead in less than two months. Jim Morrison and Louis Armstrong would be gone within a year. Dwayne Allman, soon after that. So we headed out to the Deutschlandhalle. The capacity of this house was 9,000. Chosen to let a larger crowd, for those days, attend the concert. The prices ran from 6 to 15 marks. That's about $1.60 to $4 U.S. I've never seen such a reasonable ticket. So we got seats right up front. We made our way past water cannons and scores of police, many with dogs. It was very tense. There were nearly 6,000 fans present. The air was filled with smoke, tobacco, marijuana, hashish, The band went on at 8 p.m. sharp. It was problematic at first. The acoustics in the auditorium were lousy. And the band didn't play each song as it had been recorded and presented in their albums. It was free-flowing. Songs featured solos. The music just went. I know many of the Germans didn't expect this presentation, and they weren't happy. I soon heard a few whistles and catcalls. I thought, "Uh uh-oh, where is this going? If the concert had only lasted less than a half an hour, like that Rolling Stones concert, it would have been a disaster. But as it went on and the audience understood that this wasn't just any old rock concert, the mood changed. Loud cheering would erupt after an especially emotional riff. The musicians had their hearts in this music. There were no riots, nothing even close. We were all just too limp from the sheer artistry and excitement. Even the police were stomping their feet and clapping their hands when Robert Plant requested it. The concert lasted for two and a half hours. The band played five encores, each after thunderous applause and cheers. The last one was a medley of let That Boy Boogie, C.C. Ryder, Hoochie Coochie Man, and three other songs. We never wanted it to end, and the band didn't seem to either. I went back after that and finished my exams, packed up my stuff, said goodbye to all my friends, most of whom I would never see again. I knew my reintegration into American society wouldn't be easy. I had long hair, beard, mustache, which I was determined not to cut off, and I had developed an intolerance for stupid people and bureaucrats. Well, it's time to let that much younger Ernie go and find his own destiny. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast, and I want to thank Anashira for supporting it. These are difficult times for humans. Mom and Razzie, Sammy the dog, and our chickens don't notice any difference. 
other than they see a lot more of Dawn and me. Oh, Mama and Razzie are definitely very pregnant, very big. They're eating like there is no tomorrow. Sweet goat feed, alfalfa hay, green grass, which is now growing all over their hillside, and as many carrots as they can find in my pockets. The news about this COVID-19 seems to get worse every day. This isolation is tough, and I'm not stuck in a tiny apartment in New York City or some other place. Scott Kelly, the astronaut who lived in the International Space Station for nearly a year and couldn't go outside, gave us some tips in an article in the New York Times on living in isolation. Follow a schedule. Maintaining a plan will help us adjust to different work and home environment. Pace yourself. We're in it for the long haul. And we need to take time for our fun activities and be really patient. Go outside. We don't have a problem with that. We live on an isolated mountain just at the end of our driveway. But we all need to see the sky and smell some fresh air. You need a hobby, he says, reading, painting, something entirely new if you can. Keep a journal. You know, I've been doing this religiously for 17 years, every morning. It helps Scott put his experiences in perspective, and it helps me. Take time to connect. Isolation will damage not only our physical health, but our mental health as well. I connect with people every day. I call them on the phone, and I am not normally a phone talker. Listen to experts. They're people who know a lot more than we do about these challenges, these things that face all of us. And lastly, he says, we are connected, all of us. Scott finished his article with one last piece of advice that could have come from me. Oh, and wash your hands often. So, if you have bars of Anashira soap, use it. Use it often. And you may as well enjoy the process of washing those hands. If you don't have any of our soap, well, you know how to get it. Join us soon again for the next story from Anashira. And what we really need now, peace.